0: children, you can go ahead and send them down to our children's ministry. So we're going to continue a conversation we started last week about the meaning of the word saved. We're we're talking about what the word saved means because we're working our way through the book of Acts and at the very end of Acts there's this statement that says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so as we've worked through the book of Acts, we've, we've parked on each one of the words there and asked, well, what does the word fellowship mean? And what does the word generosity mean? And what is, what is prayer? And now as we get close to the end of Acts 2, we're asking, what does the word saved mean? Uh, there are some interesting ethical implications, believe it or not, to the word saved, to the idea of saving someone. So think about this. If you rescue a dog, he comes to live with you, right? So you have visitors at your house and you say, this is Patches. He's a rescue dog. And we all know what that means. But if you save a person or you rescue a person, you know, someone comes to your house. You're like, this is Bob. I gave him the Heimlich at Applebee's last week and he lives with us now. Like, the, 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 there, there are some interesting variances in the rules about what it means for someone to save someone else and, and the implications of being saved by someone else. I, I've i been saved a few times by other people. My dad gave me the Heimlich one time. I was choking on a on a honeydew ball. Oh, I hate honeydew. Still to this day. When I think about saved or rescued or delivered, I, I go... I go to the Coast Guard videos I'm sure we've all seen of someone standing on top of a rapidly sinking ship or someone in the icy waters of the North Atlantic, and I see the helicopter, the Coast Guard helicopter above, and the dude that drops down out of the helicopter with the donut thing, and he... he, Grabs the person who's drowning and pulls them up to safety. That's kind of what I think about when I think of rescuing. But it's weird because, because the the, the unwritten social rule uh, with rescuing is that like you save the guy and then he gets to go off and do his own life the way he wants to. So it's like you had this this dramatic experience you and this guy, and then you know the, the idea is like I just saved your life. I just risked my life to save your life. Um, but, I will have no input or authority or role in your life moving forward that 's kind of a weird it 's kind of a weird deal and I think what we 're going to see today as we think about well what is christian salvation that Christian salvation is way more like the rescue dog kind of salvation kind of rescuing than it is the coast Guard. Kind of rescuing, so I want us to think about this word for a while because I, I think it's really important. Obviously, that we know what this word means when God says it. You know, there's the classic line from the Princess Bride that we all know. You know, I don't think that word means what you think it means. Man, it'd be bad if uh, it'd be bad if we were operating on the wrong definition of saved. Like that, that's kind of the 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 spiritual, transist, transcendent, metaphysical uh, equivalent to. Uh, being married with two different definitions of love. Like, that's just not going to work out well for anybody. So what 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 does it mean to be saved? And really what I mean is, like, what does God mean when he uses the word? Well, let's think a little bit deeper about just kind of what the word means in general. So the idea is that you're saving something or someone. You're keeping it from being destroyed or spent or wasted. Right? Does that sound good? Uh, When you're saving something, you're keeping it from being destroyed or spent or wasted. So think about destroyed. I pulled my car into the garage, saving it from hail damage, right? Damage, location, I'm moving it away. The fireman saved three people from a burning building. Danger, moving the person out of danger. And then there's the idea of being spent or wasted. I spent most of my money on bills, but I was able to put... Two hundred dollars into my savings account. We're using the word "savings" there as a as a way of saying it's being set aside. Um, The chef saved the extra food for the meal from the meal he prepared and brought it home to his family. Or my favorite, you know, I saved a donut for you, which means there was a box of donuts and a bunch of children who eat like locusts, and I moved one out of the box. into another location to prevent it from being consumed so that you may enjoy it. Like, that whole idea of saved, it, it has all these different kind of layers and levels to it, but it's the idea that you're moving something, that's, that's a really big, important part of what saving means. It's, it's moving something from one place, from one precarious place, to another place. Um, as I've pressed further into what the Bible means, what God means, when the word saved comes up, I've really seen that this movement thing, this movement idea is really, really key to being on the same page with God about what it means to be saved. Now, that's not normally what we think about. That's not the main piece of saving that we typically think about. So think about it this way. Um, you're, you're in the icy waters of the North Atlantic. You're the dupe, you know, drowning the hero drops down with the donut thing out of the helicopter and he gets to you and he says, where would you like to go? And then the answer is anywhere but here, right? Like out of the water. That's where I would like to go. Normally when we think about saving, we're not really concerned about where we get relocated. We just are concerned about getting out of the thing we're in. But in Christian salvation, the, the relocation is a massive part of what makes the rescue good. Um, And if you get that wrong, you wind up in some weird places. So lest I keep talking without reading any scripture today, let's go ahead and look at some scriptures that show this concept of relocation. I'm going to read three. The last one is going to be our main text. If you want to turn to that one, it's Colossians chapter 1. But I'm going to read some scriptures, and I want you to try to listen for this sense of movement associated with saving. So first of all, like 1 Peter 2, 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Or Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. In our key central text for this morning, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, Paul in his introduction to his letter to the Colossians says in verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the lord fully pleasing in him fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of god being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light we haven't hit it yet just in case you're wondering if you missed it verse 13 he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So those are just three examples where salvation is communicated in a, in a sense that involves relocation. And I chose three that had similarities so that you could see the pattern more clearly. And it's the movement in these three passages, out of darkness and into light. So Christian saving, it's really, really into and really focused on that relocation piece. It's not mostly focused on being pulled out of something. It's mostly focused on being put somewhere. So when you see the scriptures talk about salvation, uh, this movement thing is a part of all salvation. You've got to be transferred. You've got to be moved, right? But you'll see things like this. You'll see out of and into or from and for as salvation is described. I've been taken out of darkness. I've been put into light. I've been, I've been saved from sin for the Savior. Like this, this out of and into, this from and for, that's a really big deal in Christian salvation. Now, the question I had as I was thinking about this is, well, what happens if you get this wrong? What happens if you don't focus on this particular piece of Christian salvation? Well, I think you lose biblical salvation. So there's this thing called nominalism. And it just means like, what's the best way to describe it? Like, it just means like kind of an aw shucks, whatever, who cares kind of version of Christianity. It's sort of like being a cultural Christian. It's like, like you're, you're saying, I, I identify at some level with biblical teaching. Like when I need help, I go to God. But in terms of a daily personal relationship with God, that's just not really, that's just not really there. So that's referred to as nominalism, and it's a big problem. Uh, America is a nominally Christian country, meaning, uh, although there are a lot of people that identify themselves in some uh, uppercase way as Christian, but what they are is, in a classical sense, is nominally Christian. Now, why? what, What is nominalism? Well, I think nominalism is this. This problem that I've been trying to get at, and that is this focus on being saved from something while neglecting the other half of the story, and that is being saved for something. So nominalism, I think, is essentially the view of Jesus as the Coast Guard stud. It's It's the view of Jesus and the gospel and God as this sort of Coast Guard kind of rescuer and saver who drops down. Picks you up, sets you down on dry ground, and lets you go on your way, with no real further input into how you live your life. If I'm telling you, if if I was ever rescued by a Coast Guard guy, like when my wife and I couldn't decide where to go out to eat, I would call him. Like I would involve him in some decisions. You know, uh, it just seems odd. It seems really awkward that this guy would risk his life for me, and then I like I don't involve him in my life at all. I'm too Midwestern nice for that. You know, like which tie looks better, you know, <laughs> but nominalism has this sense of focus on uh well, the old school way of talking about it is fire insurance, right, like I need a savior who takes me out of my sin or my struggle or my sickness or hell, uh, and then sets me down and lets me go on my way and doesn't have a lot of influence over my day to day life. you know, I was reading a book called uh uh, outgrowing the ingrown church and it kept asking this question over and over again and it just kept saying, when was the last time you did something because you loved Jesus or you stopped doing something because you love Jesus? Like that's the opposite of nominalism, right? It's like this, this regular ongoing relationship with the person who rescued you and it's really about focusing not so much on what you were pulled out of but what you were placed into. So it's pretty common to have this view of God. We all slip into this. So that then when he does bail us out, we just think he's doing what he's supposed to do. Like, literally, we kind of think that's why I pay my taxes. When the fireman rescues me from the burning building, why, why did he do that? Because I paid him over the course of a long time to do that. He works for me. And a central problem with this focus of God as saving you out of something without thinking about what he's saving you into is that you just sort of think that God exists for you. God exists to do your bidding that that he exists to pull you out of difficult stuff and then he sets you down and lets you you know dust you off and says okay now try to be more careful next time but more or less this the rest of your life is up to you. So if God bails us out we just are, we're not grateful we just think well that's what God does. And if God doesn't bail us out we curse him. Like that's where nominalism leads. When you see pastors or Christians deconvert What's going on when people leave the faith, supposedly, is that they are disappointed that God didn't bail them out of something. Because they were all along operating under the understanding that God exists for them and not the other way around. So it's, it's really a rough place to be because sometimes God will bail you out and you won't even be grateful because it's like, well, that's what God does. Like, that's why he exists. I was walking with someone, helping someone who uh, was really at a low point in their life and, and really entirely through bad choices. And this person needed money pretty much all the time just to pay rent and so on and so forth. And walked with this person for a long time. And I eventually just said, you know, I've, I've walked with you long enough now to see the choices you keep making. And I want to help you make better choices. And I want to I I help you walk with Jesus. And, you know, at first he's like, okay, that's, that sounds good. But then, of course, you know, nothing, not of course, unfortunately, things don't change. And so eventually I say, you know, hey, uh, it's been fun, um, but I'm, I'm going to be done now. This is after months of, of walking with this person. And this person looked at me and said, you can't do that. And I said, why? He said, it's your job to help me. And I laughed. Probably what shouldn't have been, shouldn't have laughed. But I laughed. I said, it is so not my job to help you. <laughs> like, it's my pleasure to help you, and, that, and it's my, it's my op- opportunity to help you. But listen, man, I am under no obligation to keep walking with you in this way. Well, I don't think he really understood that that was a possibility, that I would feel free in that relationship to help or not to help. So that's the problem with nominalism. And it seems to be rooted in this disconnect from the, uh, the, the, the being saved from something, uh, being saved for something. But there's another problem that I, I call partialism, which makes me think of dentures, so it's probably not a long-term phrase anyone else is going to pick up. But what I mean by partialism is probably best described in what, G- what Paul's doing in the text. So in verse 12, Paul says that we have been qualified to share In the inheritance of the saints in light. Qualified to share of the inheritance of the saints in light. Paul's making a reference to the Passover story. He's making a reference to this idea that long ago in the Old Testament, God saw his people in slavery in Egypt and through a series of miracles and judgments, released them from their slavery and brought them into the promised land, which he called Their inheritance. So the Passover story shows this thing I'm trying to get at when I when I say partialism, and that's because in the Passover story there are a bunch of layers of salvation. There are there are multiple layers and stages of salvation. Do we have that? Yeah. Uh, So so think about this way: there are multiple things happening in the salvation experience described in the Passover story. So, first of all, if if the Jews place the sign of the blood of the lamb over their doorway, they're saved from the angel of death, which was one of God's judgments on the people of Egypt. If that happens, then they're saved from slavery because the next step after they're saved from the passing over of the angel of death, they get to leave Egypt, they get to flee Egypt, and now they're saved from slavery. So, that's two saved froms. Now, but but it doesn't stop there, right? Because they're saved into. They're saved into the promised land. They're saved from Egypt into the promised land. They're saved from death into a land filled with life. They're f- saved from slavery into freedom. But it doesn't end there either because the whole point of the story isn't about geographic location or occupational issues or slavery or freedom. The whole issue is the, the, the end of the story, the way the story was supposed to end, was they are supposed to be saved into life with God. That's where the ultimate end of the story was supposed to go. That was the final piece of the salvation. Not simply being saved from their circumstances, not simply being uh, saved from their sin even, but saved into life with God. And what I'm calling partialism is just this idea that all too often, the human heart finds one of these first three equivalents in our life good enough. And we stop there. So we are embracing a partial salvation. We're embracing a, a, a part of God's intended salvation. So the crazy thing about God is you really cannot understand how generous he is. And you really cannot understand how lavish his salvation is. It's just so multi-layered. It's, it's just so exquisitely detailed and full. And it affects every piece of your life. So God's salvation is incredible. And it, it has all of these different layers. The problem with partialism. Is that we will tend to get stuck on one of those lesser forms of salvation. And celebrate it as salvation itself. So let me give you some examples. Um. Jesus saved me from bondage to sin. This is true. He saved me into freedom from sin. This is true. And that's great until you start realizing that you're still sinning. Even after he saved you from sin and from the bondage of sin. And now your whole questions are like, is God true? Am I really saved? Because this element of salvation seems to be incomplete. Um, Jesus saved me out of loneliness and disconnection and placed me into community. That sounds great. That's true until you go through a stretch of loneliness within community. And then this claim of salvation, that salvation was to save me from my loneliness and place me within community, now it all seems like, well, Maybe not. Is God true? Or maybe I'm not really his. Jesus saved me from making a mess of my life. That's pretty true. Until you realize that obeying him is going to make a mess out of your life. There are all these secondary layers of salvation that are glorious and true, but they aren't the, the end point of salvation. John Piper In his book, God is the Gospel, which is really a book about what I'm talking about. He said, we would even make our likeness to Christ the ultimate goal of the gospel. It is a goal, a glorious goal, but it is not the ultimate goal. say, what? Being more like Jesus isn't the goal of the gospel? It isn't the terminus, the ultimate ending point of salvation? No, it isn't. So Jesus did save us from the bondage of sin. And he did save us from loneliness. And Jesus Jesus did save us from self-inflicted chaos. And he did save us to go on mission. And he did save us to be good husbands and fathers and wives and mothers and all sorts of things. All too often, we get stuck. Focused, affixed on one of those sub layers, one of those subordinate salvations. And we miss the whole point that I'm trying to get at, and that is, is that, man, we've got to focus on what we were saved for, not just what we were saved from. And what we were saved for is way bigger than everything I just listed. The ultimate goal of the gospel, ultimate salvation, is this, to dwell with God in love, both now and forever. That is why when we think about salvation, we are more like the rescue animal than the drowning guy in the icy Atlantic. Because the goal of a rescue animal is to live with its owner, to live with its master, and adore its master. And the goal of the drowning man is to get taken out of his self-inflicted possibly self-inflicted danger and be allowed to go on with his own life. The goal of the gospel is to be with God. We are saved to be with him, to be loved by him and to love him back with his own love. So Colossians 1.13, 12 and 13 is full of salvation words, and for you, uh, you know, armchair theologians, there's some really cool things happening here because a lot of the words that are used are, are not the typical words used for salvation. So when it says in verse 12 that we are qualified for an inheritance, that's not a word you see that often, but it's really the cousin to justified or the sister to justified. It's the same idea. We were set into a situation where we are capable of being with God. You know what's really cool about the word "qualified. it actually means made bigger there's a there's a, a psalm uh, one of the verses in Psalm 119. I don't remember the verse. It's a long psalm uh, but 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 David says, "I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart." And this idea of qualified is, is God's made us right with him by, by making us bigger in some sense, by expanding our souls by justifying us, by making us right. So verse twelve says that we're qualified, and then verse thirteen says delivered, and you know delivered's another word that you don't see as often, but it's just the the twin of saved. It's used that way in the gospels even. So we're qualified, and we're delivered, but where does it all lead? Well, the key word in the text is verse in verse thirteen is the word transferred. Uh, Methistano in the Greek, it's just this idea of being moved, transferred, moved. And the focus isn't so much out of, but into, into, we're moved into the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, as you know, I take sermon prep very seriously and spare no expense. And I was thinking, how do I really drive this point home? And I thought, I know, I need to get in the time machine and go into the future 10,000 years and meet myself and ask myself, What's, what, what were you saved from? 10,000 years into eternity, tell me, future self, what were you saved from? So I went out and bought a time machine. You, you probably saw the DeLorean in the parking lot. <laughs> and I traveled 10,000 years in the future, and I met myself. I looked really good and happy, by the way. And, uh, and, and I didn't have any pain. I didn't have any tears. I didn't, I didn't have any lack. My head was filled with truth. My heart was filled with love. Um, saved in every imaginable way. I'm looking at my 10,000-year-old self. And I'm pretty happy, right? And I asked my 10,000-year-old self, Hey, uh, you've been living in paradise for a really long time. I don't want to know exactly how long, by the way. Don't ruin the surprise. But you've been here a while. And I'm preaching... On the ultimate end of salvation. What's the final point? What's the, what's the fullest version of what it means to be saved? So what is it? You've been, you've been enjoying it all. In all of its many layers for a long time. What's the, what's the final, final, final point? And my future self said. I was saved from the ultimate calamity ultimate, most gruesome tragedy imaginable. And I said, oh, you mean hell? And my future self said, no. I was saved from the gruesome tragedy of not knowing Jesus. Jesus, it turns out, is what this was all about. And that's what it was always about and my my future self had it memorized but i have to read it the next section in colossians he jesus is the image of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him And I continue to preach to myself, Jesus, young man, is the point of everything. And I was in the most precarious place of all, of being a cosmic rube, of being the discordant piece in God's cosmic plan, of being the person, the kind of person who didn't know Jesus and didn't know the love of Jesus. That's what salvation is. And while I was, you know, while I was there, future John Piper happened to be there too. And and he quoted a book. He quoted from a book that he wrote in 2005, which I thought was weird, but it was a good quote, so let me give it to you. Piper says, ultimately this is what makes The gospel good news, it opens the way for us to see and savor the glory of Christ. And when we reach the ultimate goal, we will find ourselves savoring the Son with the very happiness that the Father has in the Son. In counseling, we were taught, uh, counseling training, we were taught to, to, to hear the initial conversations of a counselee through the lens of something they called the presenting problem. And the presenting problem is why the counselee is seeking help. And the presenting problem can be wildly inaccurate. Like my wife is terrible and that's not really true. Or it could be pretty accurate, like I keep losing patience with my wife. But we were taught to remember that all of those initial assessments and diagnosis about the source and cause of the pain the counselee was experiencing are all merely presenting symptoms of a deeper and singular problem. Every human being needs to be loved by the creator of the universe as a child. And every human being needs to love a hero, a king, a prophet, a priest named Jesus. And you and me, we, if we were to give you, if we were to take a pen to paper, we would have a long list of presenting problems. And some of them would be wildly inaccurate. And some of them would be pretty spot on. But man, I hope you could just trust me for a minute to understand that at the deepest level of every one of those needs, desires, and pains, Jesus really is the answer. And not simply as the Coast Guard guy who drops down and pulls you out of a painful circumstance, but as a loving owner who comes to you, a loving master who comes to you. And picks you up and brings you home where you live with him forever, both now and in eternity. Now, some of you are very concerned about church funds. So I want to clarify, I did not buy a time machine. I did not go into the future 10,000 years. What I did instead was I just opened up the book of Revelation. And this is a neat trick. You can try this. Open up the book of Revelation. Look for the indents. And read that stuff. Pray it to God. Because what the indents are, almost exclusively, are instances in which people who are satisfied and happy in every way have been living in paradise in glory. They don't have pain. They don't have, they don't have lack. They've got everything. Well, out of everything, what's the thing? They celebrate. holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God, for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and thanksgiving. To the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. When you grow up in a small town, there are only a few things to do to celebrate, to enjoy. And so you do those things like all the time and you pretend it's still fun. And then you move to a big city and there are so many more things to do and so many more restaurants to eat at and it's dizzying, but in a good way. Friends, the people who are saying these things that I just read are in the most beautiful city. Where every opulence and lavish luxury is fully available to them and where all of their perceived pains and problems are gone. But the one thing they can't stop celebrating is that they get to know and see and live with Jesus. That's why when it comes to Christian salvation, Relocation. That's the key. Where you wind up. That's the goal. There are a million self-help books and secondary religions that could help you deal with some piece of your pain. But never touch the end for which God created the world. The end for which God created your soul. We are saved Into the eternal love of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, it's a shame that we have to kind of hype ourselves up for this. Why? It's incredible that you are so patient with people who are so inclined to idolatry, to taking your secondary gifts and divorcing you as the ultimate end from their enjoyment. And yet, Lord, it doesn't really do any good to hide or to pretend. So we would even come to you this morning and say, I believe, Lord, this is the goal of salvation. This is the highest good. Uh, Help my unbelief. God, give us an appropriate, even a fractionally appropriate heart Response to the truth of the gospel that we are saved to dwell with the King of all forever. And that that's the best part. God, I pray for people here who who walk in with presenting problems, and Lord, don't let them hear that you don't care about those or that you don't have a way to help them walk through them. Lord, you are so rich and generous, and your salvation is multi-layered. What we are talking about today is what's the ultimate. Lord, if there are people here who are hurting with marriages or finances or sickness or broken children, Lord, if there are people here who are hurting, even, Lord, just just mentally, Lord, with depression, Lord, help them to know you love them and you're ready to walk right there with them. That's what's incredible. You will enter through any one of those presenting problems. And you will walk with us. You're just not going to leave us there. Praise your name for how good you are to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'll introduce